Michelle Borstein has volunteered to, um, well, she was kind of roped into and said yes, <laughs> to be honest, um, <laughs> to, uh, to do double time today and fill in. So we, we could not run this panel without a practicing uh, journalist, of course. So, um, so I want to say thank you to all three of you. Uh, and we're really looking forward to this complicated panel, right? We're bringing together many things. So because it's both complicated and we're a little smaller, uh, all three of our panelists have a little bit more time to uh, share their initial reflections, but then we will do the same project pr way where we've been doing it. Well, we'll have conversation among the three of them and we'll, we will open it up. And we will go for the full 90 minutes. So then we'll stop for this at 3.35 and then we'll move right into the round table <coughs> conversation and we should get you out of here by 4.30 or close to then. So, okay, thank you. And so, uh, again, just really quickly, we have wonderful panelists here. Michelle Burstein, as you know, from the Washington Post, Stuart Hoover from the University of California, Boulder, and Angela Zito from New York University. So can we give them a round of applause? Thank you. Are we starting with me? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that I've been curious about in covering, uh, even though I wasn't originally on this panel, I have done some, some uh, reporting related to refugees and, and immigration, and I've often wondered why it, doesn't, it hasn't, uh, in my generation anyway, seemed to capture uh, broadly the imagination of people as a religion story. Um, so I'm on this fellowship I mentioned this year, on the Neiman Fellowship, which is... Um, 12 Americans and 12 foreign journalists, and particularly the Europeans, but I mean, the people, they're, they're completely fixated with the story of refugees, um, especially the people in, in Europe, and none of them see it as a religion story. I was kind of talking to them about this, um, and one of a, you know, a global sort of immigration superstar reporter from Mexico, they did not see the beats that they covered as religion stories. So, um, that led me in looking at these to kind of think think about um, whether this is you know just objectively whether sometimes we as relig religion reporters seeing religion stories everywhere is this a religion story and um, I, I, the the way that I think about this is sometimes when in the newsroom with political reporters when I'm always seeing the religion angles and they're always saying well, it's not really a religion story so what that what I what I've come to believe that that means is. What are the primary? What are seen as the primary, like the leadings of all the different things that drive us? Where is religion in that kind of mix of things? <clears throat> um, and I mean, I know the religion can't be teased out uh, necessarily on its own, but you have other drivers. You have, you know, race, economics, gender, nativism. I mean, on the topic we're talking about, that can be uh, blind to religion. Um, it can be included, but is is it the driver? Uh, and I feel like in this landscape today, we're talking about complexity, the um, people really, you can obviously unravel a complicated story, but I, I feel like in the 25 years that I've been a journalist, there's really a cut to the chase kind of thing. So I, I get the sense that you know the story of refugees and immigration in US media has sort of fought to be seen through a religious lens. Um, one of the things that, uh, when we talk about um, stories related to refugees and national security, obviously this came up a lot in the news in relation to um, Muslim refugees, refugees from Syria. Um, and I was privy just last week to some debate in my own newsroom about whether stories about national security and Islam can even go on the religion section. Um, I personally found that kind of 
shocking um, since I see you know violence as part of religion, the religion has good, bad, violence, peace. Um, so anyway, this kind of, to me, the, 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 the religion aspects of the immigration and, and refugee discussion have been sort of uh, not well established, I would say, in the mainstream. And how do we, in this era when we are not the curators, really, I mean, we can't, uh, we, meaning the religion reporter, I can always tease out what I see as a religion story. And I, and I wrote several stories just um, this year about, about refugees and the faith of refugees. But um, the media is not the curator. I mean, people, we know that people, I'm trying to have the actual number in front of me, but some of our social media people told me, you know, that basically the percentage of people who read a story in the Washington Post, who read, the, who got it through the website or the newspaper is very small. I mean, most people just read, it's like 70% got a link from Twitter or from a friend or something like that. So, um, and uh, another thing I was thinking about, some of the stories I, I, I did uh, had to do with, um, and these are also covered in this packet, <clears throat> had to do with this issue of um, Christians in the Middle East um, and, and the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and Africa and how that played into the refugee discussion. For several years, I, I've heard in, um, in you know, reporting in churches and on Capitol Hill about concern about, quote, the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and Africa. And I would say, you know, not a week went by in recent years that this didn't come up. Um, and politicians really fed this. And last fall, it became newsworthy when Kerry and Clinton both came under pressure to use the word genocide to describe Christians overseas. Because if they were victims of refugees, that would sort of up their cause in this ugly Muslim versus Christian refugee competition, perhaps. Um, both of them eventually did use the word. Uh, and then you fast forward to, the, to this fall, and really the silence among uh, American Christians around the cause of Christians overseas was kind of kind of striking to me. And I went for this panel to go back to talk to people who had really been, you know, some of the main advocates, particularly on the conservative side for for Christian refugees. And, and they said, basically, there just isn't the, and actually people aren't really that interested in the faith. It's more about, um, you know, it kind of got pulled into the, into being politicized. Um, some of these stories, uh, this, and this is something I raised in, in the, uh, the previous panel, about sort of this dissonance of people having, you know, what's a good and bad issue, what's a religious, non-religious issue, moral issue, uh, immoral. Uh, a lot of times in these stories, I felt like there was a, sort of a struggle to hold up these issues of migration and um, refugee access as a synonym for morality. And I wonder if this may have hindered our ability, and one of the pieces was a critique of this, a get religion critique, of the various force, complicated forces that make people want to close the door behind them. Um, so in thinking about one of the things Diane asked us to do was think about the literacy aspect of this. Um, and I wondered if the strongest literacy angles were religious. Um, there was kind of an absence of the history of immigration to this country in the stories. Um, and I haven't seen really pieces from inside, the, like Homeland Security, for example, or the national security infrastructure that kind of looks at to what degree that, that this is seen as a religion story from the inside. Um, I just wanted to make a couple comments about, um, since this is maybe my, my last chance to make them, um, some general thoughts about religion and media. Um, and there's been some conversation about, you know, the, the uh, you know, just what, what things are like today in the good old days and that kind of thing. Um, in my view, digital journalism has really exploded religion coverage in a, in a mostly positive way. 
um, I think, you know, we talk about the marketplace and how we're trying to serve, you know, all this kind of thing. And I think that's made a much more direct conversation with, with readers. And I don't say that, I don't mean to sound like, you know, so I just came out of the advertising department. I really mean it gen genuinely, which is that we were kind of stuck in the ghetto of the religion page. And I feel that the um, this era has really made it much more possible for editors and others to see the huge popularity of religion coverage. Um, I mean, we have two or three people covering religion at the Post, which doesn't sound like a lot, but even with that, we have one of the most popular sections um, on the Post site. So I think it's actually been a very big, big boon for us. Um, and I will say, I have never in 25 years experienced or heard of anyone being told by a publisher anything. I've, I've never had that experience. So I'm not saying the corporate media isn't a real thing, but I think we're players in it too. We get addicted to that dialogue. Um, you know, I won't go back to Trump too much, but um, I, I, the idea that there's somebody pulling strings or something, I, I haven't seen any evidence of that in, in my um, quarter century at it. Um, and then I and also, um, in speaking about the, this, this question of, of refugees and immigration, I think for so many people, it's such a clear moral and religious issue. Um, and it made me think of a piece that Sarah Pulliam Bailey, my colleague, wrote this week about truth and uh, the pursuit of truth and what is truth and for religious people what is truth is there do we believe if we say that sort of our our life is, is a pursuit of some kind of truth um, where does journalism fit in that if we sort of say well there's no such thing as um, anyway and then I also was thinking about I can't believe I'm saying this out loud but I did say it to somebody else here earlier this this uh, day made me really kind of think about um, the religion beat and like I mean, I, I, you know, it's my, been my my fantasy, as I said, to be a religion reporter. It's the only the only beat I ever wanted, and the only one I ever had, besides being a general assignment reporter. Whether it's productive, I mean, sometimes I do have to kind of wonder, like, if um, segmenting it, us off in this way and having, you know, the, the religion element of things. I don't I don't know if people think that way, if they live that way, and in this kind of open marketplace, that might that might be a, a struggle of, uh, of dissonance. Great. That's it for me on that. Uh, thank you very much for thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, appear this afternoon. Um, I am from the University of Colorado, Boulder, Colorado, not California, um, and I direct a center for media, religion, and culture there. Um, our work has not been centrally focused on journalism and on the practice of journalism for the last several years. Um, I did write a book about religion journalism quite a number of years ago. I've thought about <laughs> it quite a bit, and I am a consumer of religion news, and so I have some kind of reflections on that. Uh, but I think uh, a number of us have been talking here, and I think we've had the experience in prior panels that it's very difficult to stick with uh, sort of the summative totality of our intended remarks in the context of the aftermath of the election. And, I find myself not quite able to do that, and that <coughs> I have some things that are related to the issues that have been circulating here that I, that I think might be helpful to say reflections that, that I've had and from my current work and some past work. So I'll, I'll move on to those. Uh, that'll be more of what I talk about this afternoon with a bigger indulgence for that. Um, and this is stimulated in part by my reflections on reading the case study uh, examples, because I found in the case study examples, and uh, Michelle's done a very nice job of, of sort of critiquing them, but 
Uh, and I would agree with the kinds of questions that are there. And one large question that sort of emerges from that that, we'll, that I'll pivot uh, to my other remarks based on. Um, and I think you could say the, the things about these stories that you, in the way they were covered, that you, we, we've been able to say for 20 years about coverage of religion, that it could be more precise, there could be a greater level of religious liter literacy on the part of the writers, there are <coughs> things about the stories that, uh, that sort of lack context, like who the actors are, who's responsible for this, what are the distinctions between the various religious traditions that are involved how either in theological or practical terms does something like immigration or something like security come to be a religious concern or a religious issue? Why should religions care? Which religions should care? Um, what, makes this a, <coughs> what makes this a man bites dog story rather than a dog bites man story? Those sorts of things are, are kind of missing in, in, in the stories that we saw here. Um, and also some implicit framings in the stories. And one of the stories we read, in fact, the writer uh, was very self-conscious about her own biases and made those fairly clear uh, from the very beginning about how she was looking at the story as she was covering it. And it was the one actually that came the closest to kind of moving toward the, the current political environment and talking about the interests of communities who may have felt left out of the discourse of identity and that identity politics and, that, and that, uh, to the extent that identity politics underlie the way the issue of immigration is covered, et cetera, she kind of telegraphed <coughs> that. And I, I didn't find it in a terribly helpful or self-reflective way, but in, nonetheless, it was, it was in the piece. Um, but the big question that I come, come away from reading these as, I, as I've uh, came away from reading a number of the case study examples, uh, I didn't, wasn't able to look at them all, but the ones that I was able to look at, the big question is, what is religion in the first place? What do we mean by that category? Um, and we've, we've talked about that already. What is the thing that we want scholars or we want journalists to cover? And heard today in our panels, we've had a wide range of versions of religion. Is it institutions? Is it spirituality? Is it resistance? Is it a question of authentic versus inauthentic practice? Is it social? Is it political? Exactly what do we mean by the religious? <coughs> and I think that's, that makes the theme of our conversations here somewhat diffuse because we, mean, we can mean so many different things and we can expect so many different things from our coverage when we're looking for the religion angle as our as our, as our friend from the Boston Globe said, you know, it's in every story, actually, if you look for it. Um, and so that makes it a, makes the, the whole question of the literacies involved in it, uh, literacies that would have to go across these various areas. So <coughs> this is a big challenge. Um, I think a second issue that I think is really important and one that we as scholars and professionals who cover religion need to be aware of is that we are, we are ourselves embedded in the meaning of religion, that we are involved through our work in creating as well as defining the object which we aspire to cover uh, or to study. Um, and I'll just raise for you the, uh, just to think about the, the extent to which media coverage comes to legitimate certain religions and delegitimate others, and that being present in the media frame means that you exist, and not being present in the media frame means that you do not exist, and that you know, we know this happens. And so we are involved, scholars as well as journalists, <coughs> in that object. And so an object relations approach, which sort of says mm -hmm. it's our job to sort of, to somehow look at that specimen out there that exists 
on its own, that exists on its own bottom out there in the social and cultural world, and our job is to try to unpack that, and it's this, it's this um, neutral position of objectivity, et cetera, that's a very problematic idea, because what we circulate, particularly in the era we're now in, where <coughs> what we write and what we produce, as scholars, journalists have always had this, but we have it now, what we write and what we produce then circulates and becomes part of the meaning of that thing, religion, and we've got to pay more attention to that. I looked at this in terms of <coughs> my own work way back when I wrote about televangelism, and it was very clear that the media were heavily involved in framing <coughs> and, and, and and promoting and projecting that particular phenomenon, and then it became, as you know, a platform or a springboard for the emergence of, of evangelical politics and evangelicalism in politics through the body and the person of Jerry Falwell as well as, as, other, as other people. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that the turn to evangelicalism, I would have said this in the panel this morning, uh, the turn to evangelicalism was actually a media turn. I mean, if you think about how fundamentalism became evangelicalism, it became evangelicalism by locating figures and voices who were good media figures. George Marsden's History of Evangelicalism and Graham makes it very clear that the evangelical leaders who promoted Graham promoted Graham because he would be a media figure. And we see that, then, a, a, and in a way, what happened to mainline Protestantism was that mainline Protestantism got very complacent with the idea of its natural legacy of position, positionality in the media sphere, with, with Reinhold Niebuhr being on the cover of Time magazine, and we could expect that would always be the case. And they were caught completely flat-footed when the ground shifted, and they had not continued with the kind of things that used to go on here, Harvard Divinity School in 1954 had a complete radio studio. It taught courses in radio articulation. Um, it, had, uh, it had archives. I can show you photos from an issue of Time of Life magazine. I have it right here on my computer. I can prove this to you. And that whole history, that all evaporated within years. And the evangelicals captured the center because they captured the media frame. <clears throat> Moving on, what is religion? Religion is its many institutions and its many phenomena, its many practices, but focusing only on those particulars, uh, which we uh, do spend a lot of time thinking about quite clearly because it's the stuff of what we do, it's the particular field we engage in if we're scholars, it's the particular <laughs> story that we're covering if we're a journalist. Focusing on those veils a larger and deeper condition of covering or studying religion in the U.S. context in particular. And what I'm about to talk about is a bit more about the U.S. context. Um, I, and because it's the context we're in and it's the one we tend to be talking about. We need to remember that there's kind of an American consensual definition of religion. So if we're talking about religion, are we talking about this consensual definition? That is religion that some, is something that's authentic but private and individual. And the more individual and the more private and the more intense it is, the more authentic it is. That's we make that connection. This is Madison's compromise, if you, you know the history. This is how we came to have the particular version of church-state relations we have in the U.S. As James Madison kind of, kind of evolved this compromise, first in Virginia and then later in the Constitution, that enabled religion to have constitution, to have vibrancy as long as it was private and it was individual. We think of it being legitimate because it is individual, idiosyncratic, or solipsistic, actually. 
So as we cover and we think about religion, we, don't, we, we, we are looking at these things, and to the extent they're intensely felt, the more authentic we think they are. That tends to be the way we've, we've thought about religion. Uh, this makes the public accounts and the kinds of accounts that scholars and journalists do inherently problematic because we're buying, in a sense, a certain version that's entirely based on potentially idiosyncratic kinds of connections. And this has come up you know, in our conversations earlier today. You know, what, to what extent do we try to expose the contradictions between these sorts of individual beliefs and what, what actually happens out in public? I mean, that's, that's there, and so it's kind of an issue you have to deal with. Um, so this is, with a religion, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything, a kind of public accounts inherently problematic. The implicit larger function of religion in the US context is then kind of been brought into relief by the Trump phenomenon, as we've all seen here today. It's kind of a, it's an acid test that's made the various uh, reagents uh, sort of turn colors and stuff. Religion, religion in our particular compromise in the US contributes or is thought to or is historically contributed a kind of moral architecture. It's been a bulwark against chaos and amoral secular cultures. This is, this is the Protestant project from the 19th century, an implicit role for religion as, as being that kind of structure of the culture. And in a way, that's what, in part, what the discourse among the, Protestant, among, among the Trump viewers is, is that old Protestant story of, of the establishment, the Protestant establishment, in the Digby Ball cell terms, had that sort of uh, that sort of role, and we would like to assume that role because that they have become they have become secular humanism. That's you know that Protestantism has become diffused into the humanism of the culture. We want to we want to have an explicit and marked kind of Protestantism in the culture. That's part of what I think is driving that discourse, um, and the, that kind of that kind of consensual. Um, taken for granted, golden rule, religion, et cetera, is, think of it as Eisenhower's or Reagan's religion, um, it combined with a kind of an imag imagined or an idealized past where things work the way they should be. Um, and Trump was, was good at evoking these. I mean, the, the kind of reference to, the reference to um, religious liberty is a code of that. And so uh, uh, adopting that language of liber religious liberty and uh, enabled Trump to, to take a certain kind of position on that, as well as in areas like masculinity, et cetera. And I've recently published a book on religion and masculinity, so I've been thinking some things about this. So what's resulted in the way public religion is, is dealt with in public culture is in terms of a kind of set of broad truths a denatured or a consensual cultural religion or cultural Protestantism or golden rule religion, is this the religion we cover and study? Is that the religion we mean? Is that the normative sense of religion that we want to try to, to, we want to, try to elaborate? Because that's the received definition of religion against or a major one against which we have to, we have to contend. And I want to say, I have a moment to, to kind of give an anecdote here. Um, I'm, an, I'm at the University of Pennsylvania for the fall at the Annenberg School as a visiting uh, scholar, and among the other faculty there is a man named David Eisenhower. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, discussion and controversy over Eisenhower's religion. How religious was he? You may be aware of this. Big struggles over, was he really devout? Was he not devout? He's quoted as having once said, every American should have a religion, but I don't care what it is. That's you know, generally the way it's thinks. So I took uh, I took this page from Life magazine, which has him described as a devout president with a photo praying 
into David and I said, uh, you know, a lot of people are wondering about your grandfather's uh, religiosity, so what can you tell me? And he said, hmm, not much, actually. But he gave me a bit of the history and he said that he'd always had the sense, he, parents, his grandparents did attend church regularly, they went to the Presbyterian Church in Washington. Uh, Eisenhower had been raised in the River Brethren movement and had left as a young man and left religion entirely until he married and then joined the Presbyterian Church because of, Amy, of Mamie. And he did go regularly, but David's sense was that Dwight Eisenhower's idea of religion was that it was a moral bulwark against <coughs> chaos and against fascism and against communism. And the, that he felt as long as the American people were religious, there would not be the kind of potential for a fascist or a, or a communist takeover in the nation. Um, so, I'm, so in thinking about what kind of a broader religious, uh, kind of religious literacy in the case of journalism might contribute, um, what might it contribute? Ways of critiquing the authentic and intense personal beliefs of others, as we've talked about earlier. Attempts to, to elaborate or to renature this cultural Christianity and give it some, uh, you know, struggle over uh, who's going to claim it. Um, is, it uh, is it a project of delegitimating claims? Which claims might we delegitimate de and by what standards? Uh, is it a <coughs> confrontation of the contradiction of the religious liberty debates? Uh, what do we do about attempts by resurgent Protestantisms to mark the public culture? And so I'd like to just end by asking the question, who, the, who are religion journalism is for? Because there are many religion journalisms out there. So which particular conversation, which particular discourse are we talking about? And which discourse will come to the fore uh, as we move forward in sort of defining and understanding religion, particularly in politics? Thank you. Thanks, Diane. Um, uh, it, it's just really crushing to be the last person to get to talk in this long lineup, and I almost got to be Jeff Charlotte, but they, they gave me my own name tag at the very <laughs> end, and I thought, that's good. He'll get blamed for whatever I say. Um, you know, my professional and personal uh, life has been lived at the intersection of a kind <coughs> of set of Venn diagrams between uh, anthropology, journalism, and religious studies. Um, which really share a deep history of uh, creating knowledge through experience. Um, we were, Stuart and I were talking earlier about travel writing, really old travel writing, like starting in the late medieval period. Um, in their classic forms, however, today, they share an anxiety about that experience. Um, journalism, <coughs> feared failures of that, uh, you know, through overly subjective investment by writers. Uh, anthropology, of course, has feared going native, and religious studies does not trust the converted or the convicted. Um, and uh, this is clearly a territory of borders of insider-outsider policing, but I think even more, all three anxieties are about how the passions of identity might swamp our rational faculties, <coughs> as if as if we could really defend ourselves against our many selves, our parts. Uh, so in global modernity, as we've been hearing today, um, religion is indeed deeply embedded. And it's embedded in the person and in the system as a marker of identity. So I would like to tell one small story and share one large thought experiment. 
And both of these are going to be done in the service of understanding the difficulty of grasping the workings of religion in everyday motivations, which is how I enjoy <coughs> thinking about religion. I've had a lot of battles with my students about over the definition problem. And we always end up needing to say, well, what we're interested in is the battle over definition. Mm -hmm. that, that's actually where the action is, you know? So um, religion is often usefully unobvious, in fact, and yet present. Because as the poet Kenneth Cope <coughs> says, one train may hide another. I will return to this. A young, so my story. A young woman was hired in her first tenure track job at a famous and very old New England small college. Let us call it not Amherst. It was exciting, even though the place was in the woods and required a commute from a place called not Manhattan. It turned out to be exciting as well because she found out that she had the honor of being the first woman ever hired on the tenure track in the religion department ever. She was aghast as one colleague after another broke the news to her, as in, so you're the woman the religion department hired. She figured it was safe to say that that meant she had cracked a barrier in place for nearly 200 years, assuming as well that if the college had had one curriculum in place from the start, it would be religion. <coughs> but as she stayed and worked in the department, she took note of its structure, how the four senior professors were white and male and Protestant and how they had assembled a junior staff around them, consisting of the first guy to teach about Hinduism. He was kind of a bridge character because he was himself white and Protestant. Uh, then there was the first Jew ever to <coughs> teach about Judaism. Then there was herself the first woman ever, specializing in ritual studies and not gender studies. A curious point. And in the next year, the first ever black lesbian <coughs> scholar. It dawned on her that while outsiders were excited about the whole sex-gender identity, the really more significant identity that she embodied in the department was as perhaps the first Catholic on the tenure track, ever. This was borne out in anecdotal, deep anecdotal, although not archival, research. In fact, the intellectual topography of the department had been <coughs> adroitly arranged so that the four senior white men taught all the theory courses. While the junior staff out on the periphery taught content, there was a kind of metropolitan center that contracted with, it sort of contrasted with the colonial periphery. A lot of unmarked Protestant thinking went on while the other people spent time on the body and its performances. The woman concluded that she had born within herself this identity that was not nearly so obvious to her. She had long since left the Catholic Church, she told me, and become Buddhist as it was to others around her. And yet, in her scholarly interests, she was Catholic, exuberantly interested in collective ritual life in the capacity of embodiment and emotions to perform that life into being. The delicate and yet ironclad filigree of her identity suit forged for her a set of opportunities and dangers. And she suddenly felt its heaviness and its protection in a way she had never noticed, since we all know we acquire our selfhood in the eyes of others. In her migration to the northern woods looking for work, she had never expected that being Catholic would count for much. From that very small story, now I would like to turn to take up the issue of much vaster migrations <coughs> done for reasons far more exigent and deadly than the pursuit of a scholarly career. 
I invite us to imagine the context in which migration actually takes place and the context in which it is imagined by a group of people that we have all been wondering about for the past year and a half, people who voted for Donald Trump. I'll quote Shakyed Saeed, the executive director of the Islamic Shura Council of Southern California from one of our collected stories in our archive today. Quote, some have framed the issue as a monolithic issue of a particular denomination, but that is a myth. The immigration issue transcends all creeds, all colors, all languages, unquote. Now, I assume that Saeed meant this, and it was taken in the story as a hopeful and positive point. But I would hypothesize that he has actually named one source of anxiety about immigration, <coughs> its transcendence of boundaries. This relates to religion, actually, as it is now a marked feature of people who are out of place. Historically, the great evangelizing religions have never respected borders, beginning with Buddhism, continuing with Christianity, and then Islam. They have not only and always been involved in providing ideas and bodies and practices for creating authoritative <coughs> versions of life on the ground in a specific place, and often helping out the king. They have also and all been at the forefront of expanding that territory of influence. Indeed, the Buddhist Sangha, the Christian Kingdom of God, the Islamic Ummah provide a kind of expansive genealogy of our present-day world of globalization. <coughs> it's actually one comforting, at least to me, bit of history for this new world, now so tightly knit through transportation and communication. Famously, Buddhist monks traveled with merchant caravans. Intimate ties were developed between Christian missionaries and business interests. So my question for us now is this, just how much of the anger and anxiety about Islam spreading through refugees is an expression about the other modern global non-respecter of borders, the corporation? I've been struck by the grand <coughs> mashup of things to fear, how corporate abandonment of the borders of the nation blends well with stories of immigrants assailing of those boundaries at the same time. Let's include England. Uh, do religions whose members are suspected of having extraterritorial first loyalties harboring international ties beyond the pale absorb anger at corporate disloyalty and supranational <coughs> interests? And like the surprisingly mistaken identity of that junior professor, really, do all Arabic-speaking peoples wish to be squeezed into a singularity of their religious identity when they end up anywhere? My point here is to just remind us how religion is never an object and not easy to find, even in a single person's own profile and life. It is an achieved moment. It is the outcome of various ongoing processes. It is an aspect of the assemblage of fear and desire that motivates individuals and individuals to make collectivities. So in the small story, gender hides religion. In the large thought experiment, religion covers economics. So I would hope that we go for uncovering rather than covering when we want to uh, tell this story. And I would like to read, and as a kind of hat tip to 
a group of people who are really not represented here today, artists, in this business of creating re religious literacy uh, more broadly. <coughs> the last few lines of Kenneth Koch's poem, one friend may hide another. You sit at the foot of a tree with one, and when you get up to leave, there is another whom you'd have preferred to talk to all along. One teacher, one doctor, one ecstasy, one illness, one woman, one man may hide another. Pause to let the first one pass. You think, now it is safe to cross, and you are hit by the next one. It can be important to have waited at least a moment to see what was already there. Thank you. Oh, wonderful, <coughs> wonderful, thank you. Um, let, again, let me open it up to our panelists for questions that you might have for each other. I was curious, um, I'm sorry. By the way, I'm sorry that I almost dropped dead on the stage. Um, so I was, I'm, I'm interested in, that's a good backdrop for, um, for writing about some of this. I mean, that I feel like there's been so much change in the last, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years, well, beyond that, but I mean, technological change, that part of this is just getting our footing for <clears throat> what we do, you know, like knowing who it is that we, I mean, I'm just obviously speaking for myself, but who, who am I and who am I speaking to? You know, and what are we speaking about? I mean, that was the, one of the first things I did when I became a religion reporter was look up the word religion. Like you said, what? Wait, what am I doing? So, anyway, I think that the idea of the uh, the when you, I think you said the passions of identity might swamp us or something. I mean that that a lot of this is identity related, and religion is part of you know is part of the stew. So the question for, for journalists, or I mean, when I say journalists, I mean we're all journalists in different ways, but I mean for kind of somebody who just works in daily regular news like myself, <coughs> is sort of how you can how how you can find the language for talking about this stuff, you know, in a way that um, one of the things I don't I'm, I'll try not to take a lot of time with this. I don't know if this is helpful to you folks, but I mean part of it is really this issue with audience is very big. I mean. Um, when I first came to the Washington Post, my job was actually to cover sort of rural Virginia. I, I had moved from New York City to cover um, outside the Beltway. My job was to live outside the Beltway and don't go anywhere near inside it. And I had not really been to Washington that much. I went to the zoo when I was a kid. But um, so to me, like Arlington was the same as, you know, Arlington wasn't like a big important place. It was just some random place that I hadn't been before. And it took me it took me an, to have another colleague to come and cover suburbia for me to understand that what they wanted me to do was they were inside Washington people and they wanted me to come and be like a foreign correspondent and sort of say, what's it like out there? You know, in the Northern Neck or Roanoke or Martinsburg or whatever. And um, I didn't get it because I didn't know the area, so it all seemed pretty random to me. But anyway, another reporter came and she did it right away, and I got like, oh, okay, the readers of the Washington Post want to know what it's like to be on the train for four hours a day. Okay, now I get it. So I think that, that this issue, when you're working in it daily, this issue of identity and who you're talking to is, it's like an hourly thing. I mean, literally, what are, so I think it's the idea of writing about immigration and refugees. I mean, I, I often wonder if, like, if it's helpful to try to be really clear about who your audience is, or if in this climate we can't, because it's going out on the web and there's no way to control it. You know what I mean? To sort of, what are the assumptions of the people that are reading? Well, 
that was, I think, partly what I was pointing to, and I was saying we have to, I, I think we have to be thinking about the fact that there are a number of different religion journalisms out there, right. and by that I meant circulations that involve both the, the kind of, the, the uh, reporting and the kind of covering things, but also then the channels through which they're sent, and then the consumption, <coughs> and who's there consuming those channels. And I think we're, with this era of media differentiation, we've all talked about the fact that there are all these different journalisms going on, and I think being clearer and more focused about which one I'm in and what I can aspire to given that one is a really important kind of question. I mean, I, I was, you know, if I went on with my talk, I'd talk a little bit about how to, what we could look for in the future, and I think one of the things we have to think about is we don't know yet as time goes on and we have these alternative circulations kind of competing with one another, <coughs> eventually we'll come to understand where the common conversations are. And I think the major newspapers, the legacy media, the, 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 the broadcast networks, traditionally for structural reasons felt they embodied that center. Well, that doesn't, that's not the case anymore, but there still has to be a center. There still has to be some place where some kinds of things are done. And I think it'll be a while before we know where that is. Uh, but until then, that question of audience probably needs to be a little bit more focused on like who is particularly interested in my paper and what I can do and what I'm looking at. But that, that, that yeah. is as far as I know um, at this point. I spent a lot of my time in China, and, uh, and I have for a long time, since 1979. <coughs> and, uh, you know, this, this idea of there needs to be a center, it, it's funny to say this at uh, the Harvard Divinity School, which I, you guys might be like, I don't know, kind of like a, a, the Ur, uh, brick and mortar uh, <laughs> institution <laughs> for knowledge production. <laughs> but um, but um, one thing I learned about a long engagement with independent documentary film in China, like ethical activists work through documentary and with that filmmaking community and, and and, and, uh, and that is that um, sometimes it's not so good to be centered. It's not so good to make yourself into an obvious and big target. Mm -hmm. And I just think we're heading into a possibly, maybe not, let's be hopeful, but possibly <coughs> into an era when uh, we don't want to have a target so bigly painted on us. And um, so in China, the strategy is dispersal and uh, inhabiting well and thoroughly everything you can in your own purview and working hard with everything you have in front of you. And that that's how you keep the world alive and that's how you work toward something different. So I, I just offer that as, as a possibility. Um, and you know, the digitalia that is so... Uh, uh, mesmerizing and so puzzling and so annoying um, also has many possibilities for this. Do, you know, it's what makes me even think to say it. And of course, I'm also speaking of, of, <coughs> of Occupy and I am speaking of Black Lives Matter and I am speaking of Bernie. I am speaking of Bernie's little movement just, you know, creeping right out there. And boy, it got big enough to get a big target painted on it. You know? Um, but it's, but it's just a, that's a different thing. That's a different thing. And I don't, so I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that audience. Because, you know, one of the things that the Chinese state can control is distribution and audience. One of the things they cannot control is production. And so I am really interested in constant 
complete production all the time and archiving of all the production you can. Treat your production like your money and save it away for the next generation, right? Because no one is going to save it for you now, you know? So anyway, on the writing in the audience. <laughs> Any other questions from the panelists? Can I just ask, <coughs> so I, there's so many rich ideas that you've all laid out here, and I'm gonna, I just wanna highlight a couple. Um, the question of, Stuart, your question raising, you raised the question like, what, you know, how are we defining religion, how are we addressing religion? I think that's really, you're right, that, that's, <coughs> and, and Angela, your comment that really, that's what we're, the real work then is to say, you know, that is the work, like how do we understand the nature of religion? Um, so one of the, when we think about religious literacy, at least through the Religious Literacy Project, we're, we actually never, we don't, we don't try to define religion. That's intentional because we know that it's a contested category. We're asking people to ask different kinds of questions than they might otherwise ask about religion. So the, the, you know, making the assertion there's internal diversity, there's evolution and change, there's embeddedness, is that that's what we want people to, to bring to any assertion of religion, is to just say, how, does, how, do, how, does that, how do we understand that um, in relationship to those <coughs> ways to think about religion, and how can we problematize any assertions then about religion? Um, but that's a, you know, that's, so yeah, so jump, maybe respond to that. Um, I, I would invert <coughs> that, that, that proposition. Um, I am actually less interested in understanding religion and much more interested in understanding what using the angles of religious actors uh, and religious commitments yeah. and religious conflict to understand something about society. They're just, you see, that, that's really, yeah. I'm actually interested, I'm an anthropologist, I'm yeah. interested in the social, and I'm interested in social justice. Yeah. And it turned out, interestingly, uh, you know, that religion and an engagement with religion as an aspect of social life turned out to be one of the richest places where I could understand those two things and, and go for those. So that's my interest right, in right. it. Do, do yeah. you know, so you, yeah. we could also invert this, do you see, which takes us away from the thinginess. Well, let me just <laughs> let me just say that part of the that was that's exactly the point of the framing is that it's more a question of how is religion functioning. What's what's yeah. how it, that's what we're really after here is not what is religion and is this the right or wrong religion or is this the right definition. It's like to ask the question of how is religion functioning in any given. <coughs> Place, moment, etc. That's yeah. what we're that's what we're after when we talk about in right. our context religious literacy. It's a way to think about religion. Yes. I, I think that's right, and I and I agree with with Angela that the object is elsewhere. But I I also think it's important to have an iteration in our process, which is that what what do we mean by this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because that contestation over kind of the symbolic character, that the boundaries mm -hmm. and limits of it, that's a step we miss sometimes. Mm -hmm. Saying our assumptions about what it is we're looking for, we need to critique what and we need to think about we need to think about the narratives and the trajectories and the heritages that we mm -hmm. are linking that concept to. Right. It's yes. about something else, yes. but that's something we often miss. We take for granted kind of you know, these almost in some ways subjective subliminal kind of definitions that we, we work with. We have to critique those, and that's yeah. the point of view. Right. I was just trying to think of how, um, to think concretely, the way you just put it is very helpful. When you said, well, how, how is religion acting in, in uh, the topic that we're talking about right now? Um, 
So I was curious what you guys thought of that. But I, I think I, I do think that this this kind of discussion about um, whether or not you know what's the, th this idea that religion is morality is the same thing as morality comes up a lot in mainstream stuff, which is really problematic. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you had any thoughts about. I mean, I'm trying to think of things that are really tangible, like the mobilization of Catholic churches for migrants or non-Catholic churches for that matter. Um, and the sort of this stuff we were talking about in the previous panel about you know the, the um, decline of religious leadership, people looking mm -hmm. to, um, I remember when I started, so the next month is gonna be I think 11 or 12 years I've been on this beat, I forget. And one of the first, I was a Metro religion reporter, one of the first stories I did was about the DC city council. So of course I was like, okay, well what do the, you know, in DC of course the churches have so much influence and, how are they, who, who's the king-making pastor, like all these kind of whatever tropes. And that was when I really, like, that was an important first story for me because I saw that they really didn't have that much influence, even in Washington, which was like such a city that had such a history of king-making pastors. So I don't know if in this case, the, the like part of seeing the religion in this thing is the, I mean, it's not completely, but I mean, just the, the lack of ability of churches to mobilize for this topic. And I don't know if that's a leadership issue or if it's more of an imagination thing. I, yeah, let me just let me jump in and, and and use your comment, really helpful comment, and ask a different question of all three of you. So if we take seriously this notion for a moment that we're looking at the the ways that religions are functioning in a given moment, the given moment for this panel is going to be about refugees and immigrants and the nature we haven't talked about this yet, but we, we were intentional going to say, we've got refugees, we've got immigrants, and then security, right? right. It's not a given, but we're, we're saying, this is how this is getting named, right? Issues of refugee, issues of immigration now are about security. So one of the questions that I love <coughs> your, your responses to is what, what are the legitimizing narratives within diverse religious expressions that give credibility to the diversity of representations around these questions. In other words, we've got, we do have religious communities, this is a, a more focused question, but we've got religious communities, of course, that are supporting and challenging narratives that uh, link immigration with security and challenge narratives of the danger of the, all the, all the awful narratives that we know are, are ubiquitous. <coughs> uh, we, there are religious voices and communities out there that are, that are responding to that out of religious conviction, challenging those narratives. We also see, of course, that there are religious communities utilizing their religious frameworks to give credibility to wanting to vote for a Donald Trump or wanting to support that. So my question is, can you help root us in the rich conversations we've been having here to the specific ways that it's playing itself out in the current way we think about and is present in our conversations about, again, the links between refugees, immigration and security. <clears throat> um, I'll start because I, I, I have thoughts on how it works for the Trump world yeah. and Trump world yeah. more than I have ideas about how we, how we contest that or resist that. Um, how it works in Trump world is around <coughs> the crisis of the domestic sphere. Um, and this is also a deeply embedded kind of Protestant project from the 19th century, the, the domestic, cult of the domestic, et cetera. And our current version of that is, is, a, is a valorization of the domestic as the ideal sphere of moral action and personal action. And as with the cult of domesticity, this has a very large gender component. 
uh, women can't be trusted to be the moral leaders of the home without significant res resourcing and support in the way of literature and media and tapes and DV DVDs and that sort of thing. And so that we have, we have this idealized sense of the domestic as this ideal space and the protection and the perfection and protection <coughs> of that space being the central question. Immigration and uh, in immigration in particular, and also uh, refugees uh, threaten that because they threaten a sort of ideal. And you know, f the f majority of Trump voters said the 50s was the period we needed to go back to, the way we never were period, as Stephanie Kuntz says it, was the ideal. And it was this constructed moment, and we want to kind of go back to that constructed moment. So you have this, you have this tremendously powerful narrative of the domestic that, ha that can't have a strong rootedness in reality. It's not possible. There are too many conflicts and contradictions. But the more conflicts and contradictions there are, the more cultural work that needs to be done to police it, and thus we have much more media discourse about it. And so, and that discourse is rich and it's developed and it's easily articulated in a very few simple words, as Trump was able to do. So that's the, the downside, I'd say. So. Mm. <coughs> well, I think that you um, gave us, a, and that's a, that's a wonderful domestic version of what I was trying to point to mm -hmm. uh, about, um, you know, the anxiety at the border, yeah. <laughs> right? And who shall be blamed for this and how that blame can be portioned out. What I'm actually, what I was really trying to point to is the, the great role of the unconscious, the unconscious of structure, the unconscious of the self in actually how religion is voiced and mobilized in the world. And, uh, and and paying attention to uncovering that, you know. So I'm, as I said, it was a thought experiment. Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not sure if it's actually true, but it would be worth thinking about you know, <coughs> that kind of displacement. Yeah. I, for what it's worth, I think the the framework of one train hides another is actually very related to many of a lot of the work with, that I'm certainly trying to do, and that many many of us are trying to do, which is to say. You know, we've got a we've got a normative narrative about what's happening in all these questions in relationship to social, you know, our social construct of whatever realities we're dealing with here. And then we've got a a, a deeper narrative. In my my work, it's to uncover the neoliberal frameworks that are so profoundly shaping the nature of what even the categories are that we're considering. Indeed. So I I really appreciate the one train hides another metaphor for that because we, we are, we're focusing on a set of things here and there's a whole other deep, deeply embedded framework that's shaping so many of these discourses that very, very few people are understanding or are speaking about. Yeah, so. but, but religious life is a, is a wonderful um, and a very dynamic and lively way to do it in, in, the, in the context of the United States, since I am really interested in social life, you know, in the social, and Americans aren't. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we kind of like occasionally bump into it, you know, but my students, let me speak of my students, I don't want to implicate us in this room, um, since we're probably all teched up in that regard, but my students um, don't, and, and my whole goal is to simply help make that visible to yeah. them and one of the places that Americans actually do out loud in their life, I think, encounter and discuss and are able to be social, see the social, mm -hmm. is in their religious life. Right. And therefore, it becomes an actual empirical site to, uh, you know, I don't know, get them up there with Durkheim and various other theories <laughs> <laughs> and hit them with that when they're, when they're, when they're quiet. <coughs> um, so, yeah. That's, uh, Thank you. Yeah. Any other comments before we open it up? Okay, excellent. Let's let's open it up to the to the floor, please. Yes, um, uh, Caperna in the back there. Great. Okay, wait for a mic, please. 
Who's the other mic person? Uh, thank you. Sorry. And don't forget, everyone, please uh, introduce yourself and then and w before your question. Thank you. <coughs> My name is Kalpana Jain. I'm a journalist and senior editor at The Conversation which tries to bring academics and journalists together. Um, my question is to the panel. We heard a lot about, uh, I mean, this panel is about journalism, also knowledge production, religion. And my question goes to the journalist. In thinking about <coughs> talking about identity, and what is the role the identity of the journalist is playing in covering a religion story, especially the faith? Um, and the second related question is, how does a story change or the situation or context changes when you're known as a religion reporter? Does something change about it? You mean about the, about the reporting? You mean about the reporting? Yeah, reporting or your, you know, something changes in your audience because just coming from my background and considering that I've done a lot of work in India, <coughs> I would be reluctant to call myself a religion reporter in India. Uh, even though covering religion. Right. Um, <clears throat> well, I think, um, I think that there, there's a lot of things that, that uh, make you the journalist that you are. You know, I mean, um, for example, you know, I'm somebody who likes to kind of uh, dive into conflict. Like, I'm interested in conflict and resolution of conflict. Somebody else wouldn't be bothered by it. You know, I mean, I'm interested in contradictions, like the fact that, you know, like I said, I, I observe some aspect. I was raised in sort of conservative Jewish household. Um, the contradiction of the fact that I keep some things and don't keep others. Like, I'm interested in that. Some people don't care at all about it. They embrace whatever they embrace and it doesn't bother them at all. Or they, you know, so I think that more, what shapes you is your own personality, your life, your genetic makeup, you know. Um, I think that uh, it's changed in the years that I've been doing, that I've been a religion reporter, I think, in terms of how people, how people see it. Um, somebody else, I'm trying to remember who here was just mentioning that uh, being a religion professor, I forget if someone, that somebody just, if they hear your religion professor, professor on a plane, they start, yeah. was that you saying that? Yeah, I'm sorry. Right, yeah. right, I apologize. The cold's gone to my brain. But... That happens to me sometimes. I mean, more more so in the beginning. I feel like people are kind of like, even in the newsroom, will kind of like apologize if they say, you know. I mean, so I think there, that the whole society <laughs> yes, has to get apologize. more like um, less deferential to the topic and treat it like I said. I try to keep treat it like any other big force. Um, and so anyway, so I don't know if that if that uh, gets at the answer at all. But I, I and I think when I tell people I'm a religion reporter. Um, I don't know if I'm being if I'm being aware enough uh, what people really say about me behind my back, but I th I think it's an awesome conversation starter. I mean, in this country, it just gets you like right into so many good conversations because so many people can't talk about it. So if I can just start talking your language and be like, oh, let me do, you know whatever it is, I think it's um, <clears throat> I definitely have have had my my share of you know negative experiences, but I have to say I think I have less. I think the people who get the worst kind of treatment are. I mean, people who cover issues around women, more like video gaming, and I mean, things that just set people off, crazy. Um, but you, you were telling me earlier about your experience at home that, that if you said you're a real general reporter, people, there's a whole set of other assumptions. It depends who you're talking to. Some people think it's great, and um, some people think, I, don't, I think it's an opening of a door. It's like saying, you can talk to me about this topic, you know? Um, 
I don't know if that answered any of it. I'm happy to take another stab at it if it didn't. While we're taking other questions, I have to share a brief anecdote that I think many will appreciate in this room. So I don't, I don't really like talking on planes. You know, with people, I kind of feel like this is one of those moments where I don't have a cell phone and I have freedom. <coughs> so I'll, I'm on a plane and I sat next to a particularly chatty guy who wants to know everything. Well, where are you from? Where are you going? What are you doing? And finally, I was like, I was finally, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a scholar of religion. Stops talking. Like, like just dead in his track. Oh, and then looks down at his magazine. But So that, that we have. That's really common. But then, Excellent. two seats behind me. A man stands up before, because we hadn't taken off yet. A man stands up and he goes, Oh, I couldn't help but overhearing you. I'm an Episcopalian priest. <laughs> so now, of course, that's the one I'm going to have a relationship with, right? That's because that's what we do. And really, anyway, so just a uh, moment, really right? So. Yeah. But that was my main point is that, you know, how it's Well, I think that yeah. you that that journalists are. I mean, whatever, like in like in academics or writers. I mean, you have your own. It can go, play out in a lot of different ways. I mean, people talk about a liber liberal bias. It can go the other way because you can be bending over so far backwards that you're biased against. You know, I mean, so it depends on your personality and sort of how you deal with. Um, you know, and I think that really varies person to person. Their confidence level. Their um, I'm not really. I've seen. I've observed so many. So many. Um, you know, journalists in the, in the years I've been working, and sometimes I'm amazed when young people, in particular, they have like a really clear viewpoint. You know, what I mean, because part of who I am is like I'm very nuanced and like I'm confused. Like I don't. You know, I'm very open to the gray. I'm attracted to the gray area, and the truth is that um, clear writing is is being decisive. Clear thinking is clear writing, and it doesn't mean that you have like a black and white opinion, but you have to state what you can't be caveating everything. The cl memorable writing is clear writing and clear viewpoints, and that's why I think today opinion writing is so dominant because you know you're making some point right away. Um, so I think uh, I think that this is again like I'm saying before. I think we're in this period that Stuart mentioned, like it's still shaking out, sort of how will you know, you can't rethink topics like what is religion every day when you're on deadline in half an hour. So I mean, we kind of have to we have to almost get it, get more comfortable with this new media environment and new communication environment and new fluid pluralistic environment and find some phrases that feel true to us, to all of us. Great. Okay. Other questions, please. Uh, okay, uh, Deborah. Let's go, Deborah. <coughs> It's on? Okay. Uh, Deborah Mason, University of Missouri School of Journalism. Closer, closer. Okay. Uh, we haven't talked much about images, and uh, <coughs> images are incredibly problematic and, and difficult when it comes to religion. Uh, and when it comes to immigration and refugees and violence, the two images, you know, I can th think of two images, and probably almost everybody in the room is thinking of um, the little boy on the um, shores of, uh, in Turkey and the uh, child, um, the Syrian child. Uh, and um, in <coughs> neither of those images, you know, there was no religion aspect, uh, overt religious aspect in those images. And so I wonder how uh, the use of images, the importance of images today and the role in um, 
in becoming viral, and how does that complicate the need to communicate uh, the religious nuance of some of these very complex ideas? You can yammer again if you could. Um, so we so we do today. Um, I don't I, I don't think the post is that unusual in this regard. It's who's picking. Deborah knows this, but the, who's picking the images has expanded quite a bit. I mean, it used to be you had a whole bunch of gatekeepers that were photo editors, and that I pick a lot of the images that go on my stories if they go out quickly. Um, so that is problematic because I haven't studied you know studied it to the degree. Um, but I know in this on this particular topic, uh, there was a, a group of. Um, of journalists talking about covering the refugee crisis here at Harvard a month or so ago, and one of the one of the photographers was talking about um, how one of the running into one of the most decorated photographers who covered the refugee thing, and this man had said something about how when uh, his experience of when he stands at the shore waiting for people, and that when they get out and they pull out their cell phone or whatever, he doesn't shoot them. He only shoots pictures that are basically the stereotype, you know? I mean, he doesn't pick, he doesn't take pictures that show a normal person that a lot of people just get off the phone, they text somebody or get off the, I mean, that, that, that you know, there are narratives to the refugee crisis. Um, and I think, um, yeah, so, but I think that, that this is such a visual culture that um, that deserves a lot more attention. I mean, I, I think, um, I don't know, from, from my understanding, I mean, I think, it's only going to become much more visual. I don't know if the future journalist will have much more training and perspective. Maybe growing up in the Instagram culture or something will make them fluent at looking at images. And a visual is 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 inherently problematic. Um, it it it's either depending on who you talk to, it's either <coughs> uh, confirmation bias all the way, or it's it is totally uh, fluid. And so, like, Protestant theologians have thought it's too fluid and we actually need linear narratives in order to understand our faith. And, but many people think one picture's worth about a thousand words, et cetera. One of the problematics for coverage of religion and coding religion in these is the, is the aniconic nature and the non-visual nature of some religion. So, so it's pretty easy to do a picture and say that's a Catholic priest or a nun. That's pretty simple. And to the extent that the little boy on the beach might have been interpreted as Muslim, it would have had to have been read through the color of his skin, possibly, or something like that. So the, the, the visual is a more, is a very, is a complex, complexifies these things a great deal. Um, at, at the Center for Religion and Media, um, we've been partnering, uh, Kaylee Handelman, shout out, um, with uh, Magnum Photo uh, in a big project uh, on uh, uh, visual storytelling. Um, and so that's underway. And it's, a, it's fascinating. It's, I can't, you know, it's visual. I, it's, it's hard for me to talk about it. And, but we did do a whole workshop. Several, they're really underway of, of talking with the writers and the photographers, you know, so uh, on their work, on the, uh, developing the, the story, right? I just want to say, uh, I, and I hope he may be watching us online now, but he, if not, I suspect <coughs> he'll follow this um, after the fact. But Brent Plate uh, was actually signed up for the symposium. I thought he was going to be here, but he's actually in Madrid. So it's a little long commute for him to join us. But. He, um, he specializes in visual culture. So it's, a, it's also a question of visual literacy. How do we read 
images and visual literacy is something that we need better uh, tools in, I think, in terms of how do we understand uh, images and what do they say, how do we critique them, how do we, how do we think beyond what we're told, what, what's expected for us to see, what might be there that we can read. And I also just want to say, I, I actually, you know what I thought you were going to say, Deborah, is I thought one of the <coughs> images you were going to ask us, one of the first images that came to my mind was the wall, right? So, so then I think, well, those kind of images for journalists can be profound, right? And then we've got the, the whole exchange with the Pope and Donald Trump about the wall. I mean, th th I think that then we, we're into a question of the, the, what are the motivating narratives that give credibility to diverse religious voices about this question, and that's where I think it comes. It's, it's those, those images you spoke about are the ones that, that garner our attention and, and, and challenge our, challenge our uh, responsibility. And then the question, I think, could those images could be followed up with a, you know, conversations or representations of different religious groups that are responding in different ways about exactly what, that, what those powerful images represent. So I, that would just be my, my suggestion for the next. Okay, other questions? Uh, Jane, in the back there. Hi, my name is Jane Redmond. Uh, I'm an alumna of this August institution, and I've spent my life on both sides, uh, both as a writing about religion and as a practitioner. <coughs> um, and I apologize for arriving late in the middle of Michelle Borstein's talk. I don't know if you talked about this, um, so forgive me if you did already. I'm struck by not having heard about the religion of refugees and immigrants, and refugees and immigrants as agents and actors in religion. Um, I spent five years as chair of the World Christianity Group in the American Academy of Religion, and we often um, did some <coughs> cooperating with the um, migration and religion group. And um, one of the things that I learned about from the folks studying religion and migration um, was the way in which religion has been layered in the lives of refugees and immigrants who don't have um, just one uh, religious affiliation. Um, there's a scholar who did a study of um, migrants in the desert between Mexico and the US where you would find signs that the person was a Pentecostal along with images of Our Lady of Guadalupe. <coughs> um, one of the things that's changing religion most is the movement of peoples. And I think we're still tending to see refugees and migrants as someone to whom something is done objects and it seems to me that part of the responsibility to religion and to the humans who uh, happen to be refugees and immigrants is to talk about them um, as religious actors. Let me just give you one more example besides the in the desert of Mexico. Um, uh, I was with uh, a group of ecumenical Christians last night who were talking about Coptic Egyptian Christian migration to the Boston area. And one of the 20-something people who arrived <coughs> from Egypt said to his parish priest, who was Coptic, um, where's the soccer team? Because the Coptic community in Egypt is a completely self-enclosed, everything happens there, the social, the sport, the religious, and to be in the United States as a religious person who happened to be a Copt was for this young person a complete shift in how religion is practiced, that's going to have an influence, I think, on religion in the U.S. So, okay. thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Comment? Yeah. I think it was a good comment, so thank you. Okay, uh, uh, Eddie? Thanks. 
what happens when we change, because I'm really interested in how, this, how, how we're talking about religion. Mm -hmm. What happens when we think about religion as taking us somewhere, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to being, being um, um, let me give you an example, and then I'll be really <coughs> There, there are all, there's all of this kind of controversy around the phrase black nationalism. We don't know how to define it, but I think it's useful because it takes me someplace. Mm -hmm. So whenever I hear it, it takes me to a set of practices. I find myself in a thicket of something, and Angela, I'm trying to echo you. Yeah. So what happens when we think about the utility or the usefulness of the category of religion because it takes us in particular places and brings certain things into view? And then to invoke the, the late uh, you know, W.V.O. Klein, we then have to explicate by elimination. Once it gets us there, uh -huh. get rid of the word and just start paying attention to where we are. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well what do you said. think? I'm trying to think. Well, well said, well said, yeah. No, I, to me, it's like a, a, more like, like a mode of transportation rather than like a, a, a building or a destination where we all got to get <coughs> to, no matter how we get there. You know? Instead, religion is the, it's more, like, it's more like the bus itself. You know, get on the bus and go someplace. And once you get off the bus, you don't need the bus. I mean, you, you're, 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 in this, you're in this situation. And you have got, anyway, bad transportation metaphors. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I yes. Yeah, I, th I think because of the implicit nature of religion in the American, in, in American consciousness, it is always part of the reasons, reason why, I mean, the good, good religion journalism actually does that. The stories we've talked about here are ones that have done that, and we know that's what's going to have happened. We've had to, however, label it and code it going through that because of the way we think about religion in the American context. But I think you're absolutely right. It, it is only a stumbling block to go through that definitional, to try to say I've solved the problem of what yeah. it is and then I'm going to, and what I'm about here is explaining what it is rather than what yeah. it yeah. does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Great, 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 thank you. Um, <coughs> here right in the middle, sorry for my mic people, you're gonna have a tra challenge here. Hi, David McConaughey, uh, Religious Studies PhD, contingent rat wheel. Uh, so, um, I, during your, your panel, I've been tweeting. Closer, Mike, closer, uh, please. During your, your talk, you've been tweeting, I've been tweeting furiously about your, your stuff, and one thing that came up in my feed while you were talking about security was the story of uh, two Nazareth uh, college students that were Muslim and attended as a uh, assignment uh, a uh, church service and had the DHS called on them and uh, the department chair got involved with the conversations about uh, the mission of Nazareth, which is one of religious pluralism. Mm -hmm. So can uh, the panel speak to the question <coughs> of what happens when the desire for pluralism becomes an issue of security? Uh, because I think just now, you know, here's religion reporting right this moment <coughs> online that's addressing this exact topic, and I think it's underwriting that kind of religious literacy uh, line that we have with that issue of does everybody want pluralism, right? Mm -hmm. great, great question. Anybody? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, definitely, that's definitely true. The assumptions that you're kind of bringing to, um, to religion reporting, I mean, what the, the uh, yeah, the 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 idea that um, I think that's true. I think that's true with a lot of stories about religion. There's kind of today this kind of you know narrative about, I mean, this is our struggle. To, pluralism is like our the big issue of our time, and um, 
the idea that we're all, you know, kind of, you know, just fiddling with, you know, like that we all agree with, on, we all agree with this goal and that we're just kind of fiddling with the details. That's basically was like, screech, like that's what this fall was. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, and I think for, for journalists, I mean, part of, part of the thing is, um, uh, like Eddie said about, um, or did you say that at lunch, my brain is fried, about how that you can't be, that the worst thing that you can be in this country is be called a racist. I mean, I think that there is this, um, it's a similar thing with pluralism. You know, I mean, we, people don't talk openly about their beliefs about a lot of things related to this. So that's kind of our, jo our job too. We have a lot of jobs, some of them are co conflicting at the same time. Um, do we give equal weight to that? You know, like how do you, but, um, and, ha and how do we encourage people to, um, when uh, I was asked about sort of being, being, you know, what it's like to be a religion reporter. I mean, I try to really be um, open to, to almost anything. I mean, you really want to be like reflecting you don't. I mean, to me, the reason that the that the media failed in, in this election from is just the one thing, which is that people were surprised. That to me is just the that's the failure. That's the failure. All the other stuff is maybe much for more debate. And I think um, I don't know how do we have an open discussion around whether we all support pluralism and what that means. I mean, um, but if you look at just our short little U.S. history, I mean, how you know what a uh, you know what we used to think was diversity you know, whatever, Baptist, Methodist, Congregational. I mean, so I think, um, so I think that, um, I don't know, it's, it, it, it's a tough spot, the, 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 the non-opinion journalism, because you're kind of trying to, um, you know, uh, reflect, my feeling is I try to reflect what's going on. I want people to read my stories and say, yeah, that helped me understand my country. That's like the main yardstick. On the other hand, um, how do you, I mean, I think people often look at the, you know, today look at the media and say, oh, the media, the media is liberal, whatever that, and it can shut down conversations. Um, so I think one of our one of our goals is to try to find a way to not lose our soul while becoming more uh, maybe ideologically diverse or something in the views we're showing so that, the, that our coverage will help people really see America for what it is. Um, uh, the Cher song, uh, if I could go back in time, the Patriot Act would, would be helpful if we didn't have that. But since we've got that, um, uh, I think that the real point <coughs> also that I think has been discussed quite a lot in, in, our, in our day, and that is um, that, you know, this, this uh, you know, an interest in pluralism is underwritten by robust economic uh, Security. Opportunity and security yeah. for the people, yeah. and when that goes, people are not their best selves. You know. And yeah. I want to. I want to just second that. I want to <coughs> second that, and also uh, share a story that Sean Casey shared with me, uh, who is the um, director, the head of the Office of Religion Global Affairs at the State House, he started that office uh, under John Kerry, and we hope that office stays, and we hope it stays to do the work that John started. <coughs> I'm not so sure what'll happen under a new administration, but he was telling me a story about these different ways to understand immigration, and he sp spoke about, because of the Patriot Act, much of the federal government is bound, he, he thinks they have more choices, but they're functioning under this notion of we have to befriend Muslim communities so that they can do surveillance for us. 
And he said one of the things that local communities are doing, local mayors, I, he said that's where we need to go, local mayors, governors, states, because the federal government on this is really pretty, pretty you know, now tied. Yeah. Uh, and he said the difference between that approach and what somebody like Mayor Walsh here in Boston is doing is that he started uh, uh, your Know Your Neighbors campaign, which is essentially exactly that, to be, uh, let's strengthen our communities, <coughs> our pluralist communities, our experience of knowing each other across these differences. And that that's a very different way to think about what it means to be responsible and, and, and advocate and recognize and support notions of pluralism. But I want to just say this notion of economic insecurity, I think, is such a critical one, which is why the neoliberal piece keeps uh, coming back for me. Okay. Uh, yes, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, to pick up on that a little bit and to go back to the comment you made in the beginning, Michelle, about... Oh, sorry. Uh, to pick up on that a little bit and to go back... Uh, to this is Jeff Charlet. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Charlotte. Um, Charlotte is so fancy, though. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. sorry, I'm just call sorry. You Charlotte now. Uh, I'm just going to be called Charlotte. You, said, you know, this question of you know people in the newsroom wondering whether immigration and security could be seen as religion stories, and my first thought was the right has no problem understanding that as a religion story. Right. Even, even the secular right, Michael yeah. Flynn and Steve Bannon describing this as Judeo-Christian clash of civilizations with Islam. Yeah. Um, and so part of the question is, I'm, I'm, I'm curious in thinking, why does secularism and liberalism, and in as much as they do tend to overlap, um, have such difficulty uh, imagining that? And then the second part of the question is whether that security is um, uh, uh, more about a reconstitution of American Christianity um, which is to say to offer you worldly security in the absence of your ability to offer economic security <coughs> and in response to secularism. People aren't as worried about going to heaven. Well, if we can just promise them no terrorism, we're still right. delivering. Um, and I'm not sure if any of those things hold, um, but I am definitely curious about that divide over what this, this question of people talking about whether that's a religious story. Well, I don't want to overstate, first of all, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I can't back this up in numbers, but I think that viewpoint that I said is the minority viewpoint. I think most people, we write about all different stuff on the religion page. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, and I don't, I think it's, from just what I see, I feel like there, you know, there's a lot, obviously a lot of concern around Islamophobia and um, lack of, you know, I mean, in this country, we have such a small population of Muslims, it's like we're not really... We're not very, we're so uneducated about Islam. We're not exposed to like the huge debates going on. We're always talking about like this one little slice. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think it has to do, I think there's sort of, I remember when the, when the Pope and Trump had that weird back and forth um, about the wall and if you build a wall, you're not a Christian or whatever. I never got to write anything about it, but um, I really wanted to write something about just why we have made religion into this like sunny thing. I mean, why, why you know, if you're a good Christian, you're against walls. Like, it's just not the whole picture. Um, right. So, and I don't know exactly how that happened. If that, if the media played a role in that with kind of this formality or deference to religion or lack of confidence with getting in like the muck of it or something like that. I remember a few years ago, um, Donald Graham, who was our publisher, um, invited me to be at a meeting with some other some other reporters. He had, had invited to come meet these two researchers who were trying to look into 
it was kind of a do-gooder project. They wanted to create a thing where um, basically their, their theory was that when you read about something bad that's going on in the world, that's the moment to get you to donate or become active or whatever. So they were trying to see if like the Post would partner with them to make links to good agencies or whatever. Um, so uh, Donald Graham had asked a few of us to come and sit in the room and give feedback. And I kind of walked out of there and I thought, well, why did he invite me to this thing that's kind of like a technical, it seemed like more of a, and then he came over and he basically he thought of religion as like a do-gooder. Like, of course, these are do-gooders, so the religion reporter would be there. And I was kind of like, does he read what I'm writing? Like, I'm, I feel like I'm writing so much controversial stuff, but to some people, like, if it's about good, good behavior, the religion reporter should be there. Um. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think, you know, and, and uh, the secular liberals, and this is my tribe, I mean, have been historically tone deaf about religion. We know that. And, and that when we have looked at it, we wanted to look at it through fairly narrow sorts of lenses. Um, that, that it's residual of that, I think, frankly. Yeah. Right. So remember when uh, Diane turned to say to Nathan, if you say you're Nathan, you're Nathan, I said, well, if you don't define yourself, someone else will. Yeah. So there, Jeff Charlet. <laughs> and apologies, not apologies, but my friend uh, John Charlet, which is what made me do that, might be watching. So that was actually for you, John. <laughs> anyway, we have uh, time to maybe either one more question to respond to, or maybe if there are many questions, we can have them be put out there. Okay. Okay. We have one more question then uh, before we move into our round table, which we're going to do pretty quickly right away, so please don't leave. I wonder if any of you think we're being a little elitist. We're talking about Trumpism, yet there was no one in the whole day who was a Trump supporter. Hmm. We're not really listening to the other side, so to speak. We talk about immigration, and we don't find someone who's frightened of immigration and ask them why. Um, we, don't, we talk about evangelicals, but we don't say to people, what does religion mean to you, and, and try to approach it in a, in a neutral way. Uh, we talk about empiricism, but there's a real divide here. Half the country is left out. And, uh, I don't know if anyone else has felt this lack, but I've felt it through the day. Um. I hear what you're saying. Um, I have a few responses to that. Um, I did notice that about the panel, and I've noticed that about the fellowship that I'm on as well. There's, a, you know, there is a lack of, of um, ideological diversity in some ways. It doesn't mean that we can't hear other positions and that they're not represented. I mean, the the packets of clips that we our our conversation was based on did include those voices, but I think it would be a different discussion if you had. Um, I mean, we try to, you know, I think we, I've tried to mention many people of different viewpoints and, and have, we certainly, again, the, the package included a lots of different viewpoints, but I think it would have been better. I don't know if today is sort of, I was thinking about that earlier because I was wondering if there was a time when, if I'm romanticizing the past, like I feel like we used to be able to sit with people that we disagreed with more, particularly the re religion. I always felt like religion is such a collegial beat and there's such a wide range of people in it. And I mean, anybody can testify, it's like the nicest, friendliest group of people. Um, so I don't know, I think that the, my, my impression is that this fall just kind of set a lot of people off in new ways and we need to find our way back to being able to actually sit together without, with like, a 
good faith. That um, so I mean I I agree with you about about today, but I don't think it's absent in our coverage. I don't think it's never far from my mind. I I also want to say I don't know if you were here last night or anyone was here, but I thought I thought Lori did a really fine job <coughs> of talking about what does it mean to be a reporter around these questions. She shared uh, examples of excellent journalism where people are going out and really hearing voices of others and trying to represent that. And I think there's a difference around what does it mean to really recognize the diversity of these perspectives, which has been fundamentally emphasized today. I want to I want to uh, say that. And also this notion of, I think part of the danger of this time that we're in is we have the framework of fairness or uh, equal time for different voices. We've got a framework now, I think, of what, what we're calling, what I would call false equivalencies, mm -hmm. is that the very heart of democracy is predicated <coughs> on a fundamental respect, a fundamental truth-telling as best we can. We, we get it wrong sometimes, but a fundamental belief in there's something that is true when we make statements and the necessity to trust that and an ability to say that you know we we don't we often fall short of our aspirations but we have aspirations about what it means to be a pluralist democracy that is multicultural and multireligious and that for me is it's, is now in jeopardy and is in danger and that is really a critical foundation <coughs> that we i think in that i will say that i want to be able to restore so that we can have informed conversations around ideological diversities. Um, but right now, there's, we put people in a room who disagree and it's a, a shouting match. We're challenging issues of what's real and what's true. Uh, so that, for me, feels like we have to have conversations that I do think here are recognizing complexity, <coughs> recognizing diversities, recognizing the challenges before all of us as academics, as journalists, as teachers, to what does it mean to confront this time in a fair, responsible and creative way. Um, can, I, can I ask, um, um, did you mean that there should have been, uh, amongst the journalists, a reporter who would be a reporter who would uh, be somebody different from the assumptive point of view that you feel has been represented here? Yeah, I mean, I think surely in the vast journalistic community, I didn't realize it'd be hard, but you want to be able to find somebody who voted for Trump and admits it, and uh, I don't know. talks it's about Cambridge. conversations with, with people of uh, a different viewpoint. Um, mm -hmm. I try to find it by uh, watching Fox News, and mm -hmm. I, I urge anyone here to do that. That's a very accessible way to find out how people feel. I mean, you need, have you talked to somebody who doesn't believe in abortion? Ask them That's I will tell you this about myself. I grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, in Cambria County. <coughs> and I've got lots and lots of people back there that I talk to all the time. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't mean I'm this. Yeah, I'm uh, I, I have great respect for the sensitivity of particularly this panel. But I'm just saying, people with a different viewpoint aren't here to speak for themselves. And it's, it's one thing to hear other people describing 
other people's points of view, which I've been trying to do in my brief remarks, but it'd be better if they were here speaking for themselves, a few people. That's all I'm saying. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I, um, I didn't put together this panel, but I can again tell you the, 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 the information that this conversation was based on it included, I don't know if you got a chance to look at it, but it included a lot of those viewpoints. Um, we've kind of me been meandering, so we didn't, you know, cite it chapter and verse, but there were, you know, wide range of viewpoints expressed in, in the, the readings that this is supposed to be based on. But I hear what you're saying. My, my, my feeling is that, and I'm not, de I'm not defending it or, or um, criticizing it or whatever, I think it's a different type of conversation. There's sort of, you know, people have concerns today that they don't want to fight. They don't want to fight over some basic things, but it's a different kind. You can have, you should have all those kind of conversations. I mean, it would have been fun for me to have. I mean, some of the people who were quoted in here, you know, Julie Dean and David Brody, conservative reporters who, you know, so um, and we sit with them, you know, in religion religion reporter meetings all the time. It's you know relatively diverse. So um, yeah, hopefully we can get back to that. Being, I mean, being able to sit with each other. I, th I my, my sense is just that there's a lot of people who are struggling with that right now, the lack of good goodwill and good faith towards each other. Okay, we're gonna formally close this and then move uh, quite uh, immediately into the round table. I'm gonna ask um, Lori and Steve to join me up here, but before we transition, let's give a hand to the... Uh,